0: Podcast.
1: Donald Trump is heard on tape discussing classified documents. It's a crucial piece of evidence in a federal investigation into his handling of sensitive documents. So, how will this affect his criminal case and the Republican race for the White House? I'm Fully Batibo, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guest now for today's show. In Washington, D.C., John Markham, vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. He's also a former U.S. federal prosecutor. In Birmingham in the UK, Scott Lucas, professor at the Clinton Institute University College, Dublin, and also in Washington, D.C., Bruce Fine, a former U.S. Associate Deputy Attorney General and a constitutional lawyer. Gentlemen, welcome to Inside Story. Thank you very much for joining us. Bruce Fine in Washington, let me start with you. Former President Trump has always said that the documents he took with him from the White House were declassified. But this published audio recording appears to contradict this. How damning is this, and is this a nail in the case against Trump?
2: Well, I think it's uh, an exaggeration to point to just one piece of evidence um, as conclusive. The burden is on prosecutor to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, this certainly undercuts the president's former claim. Maybe he still maintains it, that he could just think about declassifying a document in his head, and it became declassified by magic. Uh, here, at least the tape, if it's authentic, suggests that he knew that you would need to do certain things uh, in a formal way to declassify a document. He hadn't done it, at least with regard to this document concerning a potential attack on Iran. So this is not helpful to Mr. Trump. I think um, it may force him to consider testifying, which he probably doesn't want to do in the case, right. but to try to undermine uh, its impact. Uh but um, I, I wouldn't say that it makes it a slam dunk.
1: <laughs> Bruce, is it clear from the indictment if the documents that were referenced in the recording are the ones recovered by the, by the investigators?
2: Well, the indictment parallels exactly what you played um, in terms of putting in transcript and in, in written form uh, the exchange, especially, you know, it's too late to declassify. So um, that's, there's a parallel there, which would lend authenticity uh, to the, uh, the the audio that we listen to. Mm-hmm. But you have a trial so that the other side can cross-exam. You never take anything at face value.
1: All right. John Malcolm, what was your first reaction when you heard this recording? Does it tell you anything you didn't know already?
0: No, it doesn't tell me anything I didn't know already because that transcript is contained in paragraph 34 of Jack Smith's indictment that is pending down in Florida. But just as a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, an audio recording has more of an impact than reading a transcript on, uh, on camera. It also leaves open, I suppose, the possibility that Jack Smith could indict Mm-hmm. Uh, former President Trump, for disclosing classified information to a person who didn't have the requisite clearances. And he could do that in New Jersey, since this exchange took place at his resort in Bedminster, New Jersey. I doubt he's going to do that. I think if he was going to do that, he would have done it already. Uh, and I agree with with Bruce. You know, look, these are, are allegations. The former president has taken somewhat of a scattershot Approach, He said, well, I declassify these records and Mm -hmm. I had a right to keep them under the Presidential Records Act. And each one of these pieces of evidence puts a chink in that defence.
1: John, he said in the tape, it's so cool that he has these classified documents. Those are his words. Why did he do it, you think? Was this just about showing off? (laughs) Oh, I
0: have have no idea. Uh, I mean, there are stories out there that he was convinced by uh, associates, said he had a right to have these documents under the Presidential Records Act. Uh, maybe he did it because he wanted to confront uh, people who were, you know, saying bad things about him, which is what he appears to be doing uh, in the tape that you just played. Uh, there could be myriad of reasons as to why uh, he kept them, although he shouldn't have.
1: OK. Scott Lucas, your thoughts about this tape and what you heard. How damning is it for Donald Trump?
0: Well, I agree,
3: first of all, with John and with Bruce, that it doesn't change the substance of the legal case against Donald Trump uh, in this indictment. Indeed, the existence of this audio tape, not the actual tape being played, but the existence of this tape became known at the end of May, more than a week before Trump was indicted. But on the political front, of course, what this does is, is this amplifies, as it were, the indictment. It amplifies the seriousness of it. And it does cause a real problem for Donald Trump's mm. public defense which has varied from, oh, the FBI planted documents. I didn't know the documents were there. And then, of course, that idea that he could declassify them uh, either with a signature or in his mind. That's kind of gone now. What I find most interesting about this is is the context of this case, because this document was one of the most sensitive Mm -hmm. in the U.S. government. It was a document about U.S. war plans on Iran. Now, why would Donald Trump release U.S. war plans on Iran to a writer, a publisher, as well as to staff who were in the room. It is because he wanted to score a point against the current and then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. Uh Donald Trump, who has a series of grievances with Milley, wanted to make Milley look bad, make him look like a warmonger on Iran and portray Trump as the sensible, responsible statesman who had avoided war. And the reason why he presented this document is he thought it helped that case. And as he makes clear consequences be damned, even right. if he wasn't supposed to be revealing that document to anyone. Uh,
1: Scott, you say it doesn't change the substance of the case. Trump has said in the past that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. <laughs> Is this the case with this recording? Do you think his followers, his supporters will care about this?
3: Well, you know, there are some people who come hell or high water, have stopped with Donald Trump um, throughout his years as a candidate as president, even to the point of when he allegedly incited the Capitol attack in January 2021. And I don't think it shifts the needle on those folks. I don't think it shifts the needle on those folks who are firmly against Trump. But there are a lot of Americans who aren't in one of those two camps. And I think what this does is it it sort of blows away the initial defense of Trump supporters, which is, there's nothing to see here, folks. Let's move along. Let's talk about other issues. It highlights the fact that, no, this is a serious issue. This isn't just a court case. This is a court case about leaking documents. And it's not just about leaking documents. It's about leaking top-secret documents, which are vital to American national security.
1: Bruce Fine, what do you think the defense of Trump could be of this? Can, can his defense team come up with anything To counter this evidence,
2: well, it's difficult. I mean, we're just talking about this one count. We're talking about an indictment that alleges not only that he retained national defense information, which is the standard in the Espionage Act. It doesn't use the word classified information, but he's also been indicted for obstruction of justice. But let's put the obstruction of justice aside for the moment. Um, Now, what can his defenses be? Well, he could say he didn't have any reason to believe it. Could be adversely. Uh, prejudicial to the interest of the United States. Um, in fact, and I've written about this, my my view is that, uh, and I don't know whether you take the issue, is that you can make an arguable case that the Espionage Act is overbroad under the First Amendment because you don't have to prove there was actual injury or impairment uh, to the national security of the United States, just that there was reason to believe that it might happen. It's a standard of actual injury that was established in the Pentagon Papers case in New York Times versus United States. So he could challenge the constitutionality of the Espionage Act under the First Amendment. He's never suggested they would do that. Uh, In Mm. the past, he'd kind of praised the Espionage Act as applied to others. But I believe that's his, his best defense. Uh, otherwise, you know, you don't have to under the Fifth Amendment to have any defense at all. Just tell the prosecutors: got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, that I had reason to believe this would be damaging to the interests of the United States, and I shared it with people not authorized. Uh, it's not the strongest case in the world if you're not mm. taking your own defense, but he might do that.
1: John, uh, do you agree with with Bruce? How do you prepare a defense wh- when it's right there on tape?
0: Well, certainly the defense that Bruce has talked about is one he is likely to raise. Uh, He has also talked extensively about the Presidential Records Act and his belief that he had a right to have those documents. This is an audio tape, not a videotape. I suppose Mm -hmm. he could argue, I alluded to these documents, but I didn't actually show uh, the documents. Uh, You know, the one thing where I just disagree with Bruce, not as a tactical matter. Uh, I agree with you that any time a defendant takes the stand, it is a very, very risky proposition. But this is Donald Trump we're talking about. I think it will be extremely difficult to keep him off of the stand. He will just want uh, to tell
1: his story. Mm. Bruce, uh, do you think he's going to take the stand?
2: Well, you can try to extrapolate from the track record. We know that, you know, he did not take the stand in the civil case but by Gene Carroll, I guess, on the sexual assault issue. Um, we know that his attorney, uh, John Dowd, and I knew John when I was at the Justice Department, uh, told Trump, you, I'm never gonna let you be deposed by Mueller. And he said openly because you know, you're gonna destroy yourself. So in the past, his lawyers have urged him not to testify and he hasn't done so. On the other hand, he has been subject to depositions before. Uh, and it's really, my view is his lawyers will urge him not to testify. Uh, But he may decide he's going to testify anyway. He thinks he can sway the jury. Uh, You can see how he performed on the CNN uh, town hall interview, Mm -hmm. kind of uh, barging through the interrogator. Uh, But I think it's very, very risky. But at this stage, you got to take risks, given the substantial odds he's confronting now.
1: All right. Scott Lucas, let's talk about the political implications of all this. This is not the first case against Donald Trump. I mean, there are other cases, a hush money payment case, a January 6th 6th insurrection investigation. Um, The Republican presidential candidates, except for Chris Christie perhaps, um, have largely defended Donald Trump and criticised Jack Smith, right? Can this be the opening perhaps for some of the Republicans to change their tune on this?
3: need to ask them, but unfortunately, they're not here. So let's talk about the record today. Remember, it's not just the case of Trump being under indictment. I mean, the fact is, is the Trump organization uh, was convicted in 2022 in New York State over business malpractice. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are pending cases in New York State regarding fraud and tax matters uh, associated with Trump. And of course, there was the conviction on sexual assault. Of Eugene Carroll in the 1990s, with Trump being ordered to pay out $5 million. So that's a lengthy uh, length, lengthy uh, legal record that he's compiled. But that said, what you've seen so far from the Republican candidates is, is you've seen Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who's trying to out-Trump Trump. Mm-hmm. He's trying to take up fairly extreme positions and win over the Trump uh, voters. So he's probably not going to go after Trump. Uh, Why? Why are they so reluctant? Others-
1: why is someone like John Ron DeSantis so reluctant to go after Trump?
3: Because the Republican politicians are being held hostage by Donald Trump in the perception that Trump voters are still a significant part of the Republican constituency. And so if they alienate Trump voters, they don't have a hope in the primaries next year. It's as simple as that. It's the reason why Mike Pence, even though Donald Trump uh, was willing to let Mike Pence be attacked on January the 6th, 2021— did mm-hmm. nothing to get him out of that predicament during the Capitol attack. Why Mike Pence has been loath to come out against Trump. Uh, it's why other candidates have tried to avoid comment on these legal matters, except for, as you noted, Chris Christie, right. who's coming from a slightly different background in the way that his campaign tactics will run. Uh, I'll just refer you to something which happened a couple of years ago, which still is striking to me, and that is, at a time when Donald Trump had survived the second impeachment uh, trial and was not convicted. But at a time when even Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, was saying the courts must hold him to account. Kevin McCarthy, who is currently the Republican House Speaker, speaker, he initially criticized Trump over the Capitol attack. And then within two weeks, he went to Florida and he pledged allegiance to Trump. Hmm. And I think you see other candidates who think, do I stand up against Trump or do I not necessarily bow down before him, take a pass on this? They go for the latter. Because they think that Trump votes in certain states, key states, are essential to their chances of advancing.
1: John Malcolm, your thoughts? Why do some Republican candidates want to take a pass on this, and does it what impact does it have on the Republican primary? And aren't Republicans uh, fearful that if Trump represents them, they might lose the House and Senate in the next election?
0: Well, first of all, Joe Biden is himself vulnerable. There are a majority of people across political across political parties that think he's too old and should not run. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Scott said. The other thing that I would say is that Donald Trump has done a remarkably good job at persuading a broad number of people, a very, very large number of people, that there is a two-tiered system of justice Mm. at play that targets conservatives. And he has also convinced his supporters that they're not really after Donald Trump. They are after them and that they are using— they are trying to go get to them through Donald Trump, and that Donald Trump is standing up for them as their champion. And I think that other than that, Scott, is is right. Everyone else is sort of waiting to see what's going to happen, see whether these other indictments make a dent. Uh, and they want to be able to get all of those current Trump supporters to come over and vote for them if that happens.
1: Right. Bruce Fine, for our international audience, what happens if a presidential candidate is indicted?
2: Well, he's already been indicted, so mm-hmm. you're seeing it, you know, as you're speaking. The the three of us and, uh, yes. and watching things what, unfold. What, what,
1: in now what the, way will it hinder the campaign? I mean, and and you know, will it hurt him in the polls? Are there practical ways in, well, in we, which he we, couldn't we, be able to campaign, for example?
2: Well, I don't think that uh, you know his his numbers have been impacted substantially uh, by the two outstanding indictments we have now—one in New York and one in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, I do think that the political fallout would be greater if he's indicted uh, for the January 6th insurrection. Uh And on that score, I do want to call attention to another candidate, Mike Pence, who basically said, and distancing himself, in my view, legally, substantially from Trump, said on the morning of January 6th, Trump approached him and said, you got to choose between me and the Constitution. In other words, you know, are we going to have a rule of law or rule of men? And Pence said, I chose the Constitution, and we know what Trump did to Pence and kind of let him out hang to dry. Uh, And so the reason why January 6th looms so large politically is because under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, if there's a conviction under insurrection, there's a disqualification of anyone in that position from ever occupying not only the presidency any office under the United States. Mm-hmm. And I do think that would that would that would move the issue in a different direction because okay. it's going to be very difficult for Mike Pence to walk back his words which are about as incriminating as you can get.
1: Uh, okay, interesting. So what happens then if he's elected, let's say, we're we're speculating here of course, if he's elected with a case still in progress.
2: Well, we have this very unusual feature. Could a president pardon himself? Now, I confronted that issue that didn't have to reach fruition at the Justice Department when President Nixon uh, was under investigation by Archibald Cox, and then he was fired, and then it was the Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski, and there was worries, well, as President Nixon going to pardon himself, uh, which would prevent a prosecution. Uh, there was no clear recognition whether there would be any obvious conflict of interest that would prevent that pardon from being effective. So it's an unknown territory, and it's possible— if President Trump were elected, he could pardon himself and move all of these cases off the docket because you can issue a pardon even before an indictment, not only after indictment. Mm. So those are the stakes when it comes to the rule of law, at least as a possibilities. I underscore it's an unknown constitutional terrain right now. Yeah,
1: uncharted territory. Uh, Scott Lucas, uh, Trump still holds a commanding lead over his announced primary opponents. Could that change? Who or what do you see as his biggest challenge right now?
3: I HAVE A LOT OF SPECULATION. INDEED, Mm -hmm. IT PLAYS INTO DONALD TRUMP'S HANDS TO SPECULATE ABOUT POLITICAL RAMIFICATIONS BECAUSE WHAT TRUMP IS TRYING TO DO IS TO PLAY THE VICTIM AND AT THE SAME TIME SAY IF YOU PROSECUTE ME, IF YOU PURSUE THIS, IT ONLY MAKES ME STRONGER. THE FACT OF THE MATTER IS is THAT WE STILL HAVE uh, EIGHT MONTHS BEFORE THE FIRST REPUBLICAN PRIMARIES AND CAUCUSES. Uh, WE STILL HAVE uh, 17 MONTHS BEFORE IT IS THE GENERAL ELECTION. AND THAT'S A LONG AND WINDING ROAD. What I can tell you right now is is that this lays out into something which will be the case of facts and the legal process versus white noise. And the white noise, which will be there on social media, it'll be there on certain media outlets in the United States, is to try to simply cover up the legal process, to wish it away, to turn it into a deep state plot against Donald Trump to raise other distracting issues. And that raises a broader issue, because if that white noise triumphs, If the legal facts of this case and of the other case are obscured, are ripped apart by deception, by misrepresentation, it says something about the challenge to American democracy, a challenge which could be at its greatest point. Since 1865.
1: It's still a long time, as you say, Scott, until the Republican primary. Now, the Biden team, interestingly, has been very quiet for the time being. Will Will this change, in your view, over the next few months as the campaign heats up? How do they handle this without commenting on the legal developments, without looking like they're interfering in the case one way or another?
3: You don't comment on the case because it would be interference. That's not just a political decision, that's a legal decision. Uh, This is a case which is being brought uh, by the Justice Department. It's being brought by federal prosecutors. The judicial branch of the United States must remain separate from the executive branch, and that must be respected by the president, whether he's named Joe Biden or someone else. So I would expect no comment on the details of this case uh, now or in the future, no matter how much, again, white noise is thrown up to try to force or push Joe Biden into making a comment, which would be inappropriate.
1: All right, John, your thoughts. How do you see all this uh, proceeding and progressing? It's complicated, isn't it, to to deal with classified documents in court?
0: It is. Uh, so commenting on what Scott just said, that's not the only reason Joe Biden won't Uh, comment on this. He is himself still under investigation by a special counsel for Mm. possession in his own right of classified uh, documents. And uh, there is all of these reports out there from whistleblowers and whatnot that his son Hunter Biden just got a real sweetheart deal in Delaware and that the Department of Justice obstructed That investigation. So, President Biden enters into very, very hot water if he comments at least at this stage uh, on this indictment. Scott's also right. There's a long time between the first caucuses and primaries and a longer time before the election. Uh, I think that President Trump, probably about 50% of his support is very, very firm. The other 50% are fishing around and could be persuaded to join other candidates. And I think that is waiting to see what other shoes drop.
1: Okay. Bruce Fein, I'll give you the last word. Your thoughts about Joe Biden and the Democrats, can they capitalize on this? And how do you see this case against Donald Trump uh, progressing and proceeding?
2: Well, I certainly agree. The position of Mr. Biden should be complete silence. Um, That's what it means to have a rule of law rather than a rule of men. Um, Process is so important. It's the centerpiece of our democratic dispensation. He shouldn't say a single word other than uh, that there's a presumption of innocence. Mr. Trump is entitled to all the rights that any other defendant would have. Let's have this decided in a court of law. And in advance, we accept the verdict, no matter what it is. We don't hedge one way or the other. Um, And I do think this particular election and the investigations of Mr. Trump are truly uh, the greatest test of our democracy, certainly since Watergate. Uh, Our processes are under threat. Uh, Mr. Trump has questioned their legitimacy, uh, basically saying, I don't need to comply with the Constitution. Uh, In 2019, he said without any pushback Uh "Then I have Article 2 where I have the right to do anything I want as president. If that takes hold in this country, the revolution of 1776 has been undone.
1: Okay, gentlemen, thank you so very much for your insight. It was very interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Bruce Fine, John Malcolm, Scott Lucas, thank you very much. This episode was produced by Shantanu Terji, Laura Khan, Fungi Nguyen, and Jimmy Getahoon. Studio sound was by Yasir Ramani. The program was edited by Vinish Velilat, Lin Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next episode. This week on The Take, the theories behind why orcas are ramming into boats off the coast of Portugal and why it's taken the internet by storm. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.